You're listening to the Root Causing Health Podcast. I'm Nick Andre, and together with my partner Nathan Owens, we are delving deep into the science to answer the question, what causes chronic disease? We'll cover the basics, talk about our hypotheses, and bring you the best guests from around the medical and research community. If you like what we have here, please join us over at rootcausinghealth.com, where you'll find our blog and other resources. You can also support us on Patreon to fund our research and get early access to all of our content. All right, so Dr. Sean Amara is the founder of MedCon Wellness, a not-for-profit medical clinic, and he's been using MRI scans to track patients' progress in losing visceral fat and achieving optimal health and wellness. And he also puts how many push-ups and pull-ups he can do on his website, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> I'd forgotten I did that. <laughs> so uh, we're wondering if you couldn't give us your story. How did you end up kind of taking this different route into health? Did you have like personal experiences with poor health or other things that led you to, to investigate this? Sure. Well, I uh, trained in the Army as an emergency medicine physician. So uh, that required four years of medical school and then another four years of residency in emergency medicine. I actually finished my residency back in 2002 and exclusively practiced as an emergency medicine physician for um, approximately uh, 17 years. And then I had an occasion where I was exposed to a uh, patient that came in to, uh, uh, to be seen, and he was unusually healthy, and it d led to a discussion about uh, uh, why and what he would eat. And at that time, this was about uh, 2000 and uh, I'd say 2010, 2011 time period, he said he was paleo. What, what did you mean by unusually healthy? Yeah. So first of all, he, he wasn't overweight. He, he had very nice uh, muscular build. Uh, he had an unusual glow about his skin. So I actually thought at first that he might be jaundiced. So I remember uh, palpating his liver to get an idea if he, had, rather, uh, if he had an enlarged liver. And so I finally just came out and said, uh, uh, but his whites of his eyes were really white, which is inconsistent with uh, elevated uh, levels of belly ribbon or what we call jaundice. So I came out and said, do you eat an unusual diet? So uh, you had this glow about him and people that eat a lot of vegetables can have this kind of a, uh, a tinge to their skin. And he said, yeah, I, I, I'm actually paleo. And I said, well, what is paleo? I, I'd never heard of it uh, at the time. So he told me a little bit about it, and he said one interesting fact, and I think you guys will like this. He shared that Sergey Brin had recently decided to go paleo because Google had tracked uh, how paleo was performing on the Internet. Then they found that people that uh, were Googling paleo spent more time reading about it than any other diet that people were uh, Googling at the time. So it suggested on an individual level, people that were researching a diet, they found that more interesting and therefore in inferentially more important to them. The second thing that was persuasive to Google, Sergey Brin, was the fact that the contacts of those people that they also track started to behave and do the same thing. They started to Google the paleo diet and spend a lot of time on it. So this suggested what 
what is endorsement. So uh, on an individual level, people found it was important. And then secondly, they endorsed it to their contacts. So that right there said, Google thinks this is important. Sergey Brin did that kind of analysis. I said, that is really interesting. So I said, I better check it out from a physician standpoint. None of the Weight Watchers people were phoning home to all their contacts to tell them how effective it was, basically what was going on? No, apparently not. And judging from their, their stock, uh, uh, how, it's, how it's been doing recently, I don't think that's turned around for them either. <laughs> so uh, I, I decided at that time, after reading, doing some self-study about a high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet then called uh, Paleo, uh, to uh, make a personal choice myself to start eating uh, paleo. And uh, I basically have continued uh, since that time uh, now uh, adopting intermittent fasting and uh, a ketogenic lifestyle. Were there particular problems that you had that you noticed going away personally when you started that? Was weight a problem for you? Was- oh, yeah, very much so. So uh, I, first of all, I was obese. I was overweight. I'd got out of the army. I had promised myself that I would not become a ex-army uh, fat guy. And that's, in fact, what I did. I became overweight. And along with uh, obesity uh, came other problems. So I was I was pre-diabetic. I'd been already uh, given a glucose uh, challenge, glucose tolerance test and identified as pre-diabetic. I had high blood pressure. I had eczema so bad my lesions would bleed and I, I had blood-stained uh, t-shirts and clothing and sheets uh, from my eczema. Uh, I had restless leg syndrome. My legs would kick all night long, keeping my wife awake. Uh, when I wasn't kicking my legs, I was snoring. I had obstructive sleep apnea. I had a severe gastroesophageal reflux disease diagnosed um, by uh, histopathology biopsies of my esophagus, where I actually developed Barrett's esophagus, which is a uh, pre-malignant, uh, pre-cancerous condition uh, with uh, changes in your mucosal lining of your esophagus. I had um, uh, migraine, or uh, not migraines, but I had uh, a loss of my memory where my memory was being impaired. I would tell my wife uh, one thing two hours later, I'd walk in the room, tell her again that very same thing. She would say, I, you already told me that, and I was absolutely adamant that I had never told her that. Uh, you know, it was really losing my memory. I had uh, enlarged prostate where I was uh, having to wake up uh, three times a night to uh, three or more times a night to uh, to pee, and um, I could only describe my my ability to urinate as it would just fall out of me. It was gravity. Uh, it was no longer um, an ability to control a stream or to to hurry things along. And the surprising thing was when I went on that high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet, it wasn't because health claims were made. It wasn't because, you know, I, I had uh, thought that, you know, any of these problems would go away. Uh, what, what I, I made that decision just because it seemed like such a sensible diet. And one year later, I noticed all of those problems had gone away. And I had previously undergone a carotid ultrasound diagnosing uh, atherosclerotic cardiovascular plaques, 35% of my right, 33% of my left. And um, it was two years uh, after that, I underwent uh, an MRI scan and I had seen those lesions had actually uh, reversed and resolved um, because of my, my lifestyle choices. And it's the cumulative effect of going on a free diet, changing my lifestyle, being able to go off all my medicines, 
uh, being able to go through an evening without having to wake up anymore to, to pee. And now being able to pee again, like a, like an 18 year old with all of the, these medical problems being resolved that I got more than just passionate about, uh, trying to get our country more healthy. Uh, I became very upset with conventional health care and the system, uh, that had ignored all these things. And I felt that I just kind of stumbled into it, uh, just because I had this encounter with this one patient and that set me into, um, uh, a uh, effort on my own to start researching and study uh, dietary interventions, uh, finding out about the quantified self movement and biohackers and this this uh, citizen scientist community that's out there with individuals that, in my opinion, are making far more contributions to the improvement of humanity than everything probably all physicians and MDs had ever put together. So. Uh, as far as measuring how you can improve health and getting people healthy uh, compared to the conventional approach in healthcare, where physicians seem to be completely focused and preoccupied with simply treating disease, uh, happy with the existence of disease, provided they treat it, uh, and, and really not uh, even imagining that you could actually reverse disease through uh, a life, lifestyle changes. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty crazy. It's interesting to hear how different people who have ended up here, how we all heard about it at first, because it was never from the guidelines or anything. You know, it's always from a friend or a doctor or, or someone who just casually mentions it. But one one of the things we noticed was that you'd been looking at MRI specifically as a proxy here. I know, like, obviously, I, Ivor Cummins' adage is that like if you don't measure it, it don't get fixed. Is kind of how it works in in medicine. So it's very helpful to have things that you can track. And there are a lot of different things that we track, whether that's like a visceral adipose tissue from a DEXA scan or even just a waist circumference or other interesting things. But kind of what what led you to look into that? Was there research that was particularly helpful or that or that people listening might find interesting to dig in that, that you read at first or and how much of it was kind of a novel things that you were looking into? Yeah. So um, for you know, about two or three years, I had been high fat, low carb, paleo, uh, doing this largely on my own uh, as a physician, no real way to uh, verify or measure any particular uh, metrics or biomarkers at that time. I certainly had felt better. Uh, I'd gone through diagnostic testing um, uh, and, and a lot of these issues had gone away from a, a disease standpoint. But what I was uh, most profoundly moved by was uh, a physician that I uh, met just by chance, uh, who uh, was from China, born in China, moved to the United States and became a licensed uh, physician, uh, trained in preventive medicine and epidemiology. And he was the one that invited me to uh, come to his research practice and have my visceral fat scanned. Well, I didn't know too much about visceral fat as an emergency medicine physician, and I hadn't read much uh, of anything about it on the internet. And so I decided to accept his request. I came to his facility, and uh, he he had his own MRI scanner that uh, he had been previously conducting research uh, on leasing uh, the scanner. And um, uh, as it turned out, he uh, the owner of the MRI scanner, it was a diagnostic center, uh, sadly declared bankruptcy. They end up uh, coming down with cancer. So he was able to get the MRI scanner, just buy it 
And so he, he just did research. So he invited me to come in and, and, and have my visceral fats uh, uh, measured. And uh, there I was going through the scanner, terrified. And I thought, you know, I, I've really worked hard for two to three years. I've gone on this high fat, low carbohydrate diet. And I, I'm going to be so discouraged if I see a lot of disease uh, in my body. So um, without any discussion, the MRI tech came in. I, I wasn't introduced to them. Uh, they fin- they just scanned me, and then and a- after I finished the scanning, uh, the tech looked down at me, and he said, "You are obscenely healthy." And I got to tell you, those were some of the most gratifying, reassuring words I've ever heard in my life. And that was an epiphany epiphany for me. And I realized the power of this uh, MRI scanner that allowed you to take a look inside. And so, subsequent to those words being shared, the images. Uh, were subsequently shared with me, and uh, I was able to see um, actually inside my body how much uh, uh, fat and muscle tissue I had, the ratios of that, and, and also looking at fat around my heart and then um, uh, my cerebral arteries and my carotid arteries. And it, it was just a fantastic window uh, that allowed me to appreciate that this is what's been missing in medicine, uh, diagnostic studies to take a look at biomarkers connected to uh, to health and reversal of disease and the optimization of health. So uh, I was in a short period of time after you know demonstrating my enthusiasm for what he was up to, I was invited to be a part of the research uh, effort there in uh, Minneapolis, and and to this day it's now uh, almost um, uh, five five years since that particular point. Uh, I'm still uh, actively involved in that research practice and enjoying every minute of it. That's awesome. <clears throat> so what have you learned from the research practice? I think I heard you say on another talk that you have scanned data from 4,000 patients, which seems like it would be pretty interesting to look at for trends and patterns. And then also, do you do any other tests or labs on people commonly? Yeah, great, uh, great tests, uh, great questions. So uh, we started off uh, focusing on uh, visceral fat uh, early on in the research, we saw the association between uh, visceral fat and uh, lumbar disease, people that were having lumbar pain. So uh, the research actually, uh, and with the MRI, started focusing actually by uh, uh, on the lumbar uh, uh, spine and lumbar disease. And uh, just by chance, they happened to see the association <laughs> of all this visceral fat with the most symptomatic people. So uh, it, it caught the interest of the uh, the investigator. And most of the time, you, you what's called cone down. You, you just focus in on a particular area. But, you know, to save a little time, they didn't bother coning down and they just allowed all that other tissue. And, uh, you know, sometimes mistakes like that happen and it, and it allowed uh, the discovery of visceral fat in association to uh, symptomatic um, uh, lumbar, lumbar disease, degenerative disc disease, and uh, degenerative joint disease. So, uh, we started then looking specifically at visceral fat. Uh, we then, uh, after collecting studies, uh, numerous studies on visceral fat, started looking at pericardial fat, which is uh, fat around the heart. And we also took a look at subcutaneous fat and its relationship between these different bodies of fat to muscle tissue. And uh, as unhealthy people accumulate more fat, uh, they also... Uh, develop um, atrophy or sarcopenia, reduction of their muscle tissue. So uh, the, the, the large number of studies 
that we did with visceral fat and pericardial fat uh, also resulted in opportunities to work with these patients where we reversed uh, this visceral fat accumulation. And from their experience, you know, describing what would happen resolution of various different medical conditions, they began to report something very interesting that their memory imp- improved, their ability to process information. Uh, in this particular case, a lot of these individuals that were participating in this particular study uh, were business executives. They were people who were willing to uh, pay cash to get uh, a study like this uh, done because insurance companies are not at all interested in reversing chronic disease. So people had to pay out of pocket to get this kind of analysis done. And they they started reporting as C-suites, C-level, CEOs, CFOs, COOs of companies that they could process their information more quickly and with uh, less with a, a an approved error rate. So that led, um, based on their, their own inquiry to us, uh, whether reduction of visceral fat could actually help improve uh, people's co- cognitive performance, allowed us to question and start scanning uh, the head. So we started looking specifically at the head to see if we could capture any changes as visceral fat goes away. And what we saw happening was the cerebral arteries that showed evidence of atherosclerotic cardiovascular plaques, and I think I sent you some images of this, that were occluded, began to open up. And we'd never seen anything like that. And I scan people all the time in the ER with uh, MRIs, uh, doing uh, NG, uh, M- with, with contrast, and we just report that disease and we'd push it to, uh, to primary care doctors. And I would ask these primary care doctors, what do you do when you, <laughs> when you get these reports of people with, uh, you know, disease and clogged arteries in the brain? They, they just say, well, we start them on statins. Yeah, that statin's going to fix that right up. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. It, what was remarkable is that we, we followed these patients using a high fat, low carbohydrate diet. And uh, we do a lot of other uh, interventions, which I sent on to you guys as well. And what we thought would be years, you know, to open up those clogged arteries, because it's basically years that those arteries uh, presumably are getting occluded over a period of time. But no, we're seeing this in a matter of months, these arteries opening up through lifestyle choices. Which arteries were you scanning in particular? Well, we scanned an area of the brain, uh, the arterial system, the brain called the circle of Willis. So these are cerebral arteries are basically the main arterial system within supplying blood to the brain. And uh, not surprisingly, the, the number one site of most strokes are the middle cerebral artery. And that's where we tend to see a lot of uh, uh, a lot of this occlusion. And we're able to capture this, you know, memorialize it in MRI studies and bring people back. And that's, that's why I like the MRI is one, its resolution is so good, but two, because it's non-ionizing, uh, meaning it doesn't use any radiation. We can scan people, uh, every day if we want. And in fact, we have done that. Uh, uh, we've, we've scanned people on Friday, uh, have them go and, you know, they fall away and start eating a bunch of rice and cake, uh, in a wedding over the weekend. And we bring them back on Monday and we can scan them again and show them the increase in visceral fat. So it's pretty exciting, the the powers and the possibilities that you can get with taking a look at uh, measuring uh, the accumulation of disease and its reversal. And uh, so uh, that's why it's been such a fulfilling uh, five years using the MRI scanner for me, uh, taking a look at lifestyle uh, interventions and how 
uh, people live their lives to either accumulate disease or how they make healthier choices to eliminate disease. And that the other thing I guess that your, your most important thing I'd like to share with your audience actually about the reverse of chronic disease is I saw, we saw something that, that happened to uh, individuals that were able to reverse chronic disease that we didn't anticipate. And that is human performance improved across the board. And the reason why I think that's important is, honestly, I think that's a leverageable area that we need to help make uh, progress with uh, reversing chronic disease in our country because people, let's face it, it's not the sexiest topic in the world to get people healthy. But if you can get them performing better, now you got a handle to get a purchase on a lot more people and their lives because, uh, you know, a lot of my clients just weren't very interested in getting healthy. But if I could show them how they could perform better, and they had a livelihood that was predicated upon performance, meaning their their annual income was connected to how well they perform. Now that would speak to them and motivate them. And that's that's what I'm out promoting. What metrics exactly did you use to try and track that? Well, that's the difficult thing. Like, how do you track human performance? Not really into it. It's, you know, something that uh, you could track uh, intelligence through uh, IQ testing, uh, memory. Uh, there's a lot of uh, intelligence and, and, and neurocognitive performance tests that are being done for traumatic brain injury and PTSD connected to the military community. That's not an area I'm super interested in. Uh, so what I do is I identify the biomarkers to reverse disease. I tell people the interventions to do. And they can track their own performance. So typically what, you know, gets reported is uh, their own memory improves, their error rates improve, uh, they make more money, they get more work done. If they're athletes, they start running faster. So we have Olympic athletes that work with us. They, they lift more weights, they're stronger, they're faster. Uh, and, you know, if they're in the business community, they just start looking better. So we started tracking uh, a lot of things. We'll take photographs of people's faces, of their bodies, of course, we do MRI images. We're trying to track as many different uh, areas on their body to follow because I think the future of of, of medicine, healthcare, is going towards uh, more in line with uh, quantified self and biohacking, where people will be armed with information uh, metrics that they can follow that uh, allow them, independent of working with a hospital system, uh, high-priced physicians. Uh, 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 limited by insurance companies that dictate what they can and cannot uh, do and, and test and individuals uh, educated to biomarkers that they can follow both on their body and inside their body uh, are going to uh, have far better results than spending probably hundreds of thousands of dollars in the healthcare system. Uh, ultimately, and ending up, you know, uh, 60, 70, 80 years old with a bag full of medicine going into ERs uh, looking like Hades. So the other interesting aspect to the MRI imagery, imagery is uh, I would pay attention to people's bodies uh, that would come in. And, and it first came up with their faces. They would come back and, and I would see changes in their faces. But uh, I I have an unusual ability to detect changes in the face because I have uh, Asperger's. 
And uh, so I have limitations, sort of like a blanket. You pull a blanket up, exposes the feet, but covers the head. You pull the blanket down, covers. So I, I have certain strengths and weaknesses. My weaknesses are uh, I'm not so good with in, interpreting uh, facial expressions and 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 uh, nuances with with feelings. And, but uh, I'm awesome in tracking little teeny tiny changes in skin and on the face. So uh, these faces started to change and. I kept having the MRI tech do MRIs on people's faces because I'm like, my God, their faces changed. We got to figure out what is what's going on with their their face. And then I started to realize that uh, other things would change too. So cutaneous manifestations like telangiectasias, uh, uh, basically spider veins and uh, manifestations along the face. Uh, I even picked up that blackheads. Uh, this is super interesting. Blackheads on people's noses were changing. So these aren't really um, uh, blackheads. What they are is sebaceous filaments. So people have pores on their skin. Uh, the pores are natural. They, they fill with oil. And then they uh, oxidize and they turn black. So it's really not dirt. Oxidation, guys. What does that sound like? Reactive oxygen species. So guess what? You can start watching. Resolution and nasal blackheads. So the sebum created by these glands are less oxidatable. They're less vulnerable to oxidation from the air. And so what we have seen is resolution in nasal blackheads. Now, that may not sound like a big deal, but it's kind of interesting as a connection to health because let's put you guys back to uh, 16, 17, 18 years old. Your f first romantic encounter maybe with kissing uh, you know, somebody and you're making the move and you're going in a little close and suddenly you see on that person a lot of nasal blackheads. What does nature tell you to do? Attracted or not? So attraction really is an interesting, I think, uh, aspect to health. And the fact that nasal blackheads are present or can be reversed uh, is, is an interesting biomarker. It's one of many that, that we have figured out. Uh, I pay attention to all these unusual manifestations in the skin because of my Asperger's. And as we reverse uh, visceral fat and we reverse pericardial fat and open up arteries, we would see these cutaneous changes uh, in the skin. Um, so nasal blackheads are one. Uh, changes in, in toenails and fingernails, especially toenails. Uh, oftentimes as we age, they become, uh, I call them the, the, uh, the canary and the coal mine because, uh, it's a, uh, and there's a Chinese proverb that, uh, the Chinese say you, you die with your feet first. Uh, meaning that's kind of the first area you start to, uh, to experience disease. So the, cutaneous changes in toenails as they discolor and they uh, change appearance uh, reflects aging and chronic disease. And more precisely, in my opinion, is a lack of blood flow. So uh, the toenails being the furthest tissue body uh, from the heart, uh, they start to manifest evidence of disease. And so I would see these changes in the toenails, <clears throat> not particularly the coolest thing to look at, but as a researcher, I couldn't ignore the fact that I could get these people's toenails looking better. So they would have fungemia, they'd have, you know, fungal, you know, onchomycosis, you know, toenail changes from fungus. Well, you get the blood flow better there, it simply goes away. Or you could take a bunch of pills that could damage your liver and you have to get a bunch of blood tests. I don't understand this logic, but people, you know, really want pills to, 
to kind of get rid of uh, toenail fungus. It's simply because they don't know that uh, they could treat the underlying problem, let that toenail fungus go away, and oh, by the way, get blood flow better to your heart, to your organs, to your brain, and increase human performance, your whole lifestyle, and your your overall level of health. So those those are just a few of the biomarkers uh, that I've uh, observed uh, and taken a look at uh, at the changes in the skin and outside the body as I took a look at uh, changes going on inside the body. I, I have myself been increasingly interested in this because I've become more and more convinced that a lot of the things that we popularly consider to be aging in our population are actually just appearance of diabetic pathology in one way or another and and this same sort of chronic disease manifesting in the skin like i think most carnivores who have ever tried this diet will will have realized that they've started to get like offhand comments to them that they like look better and it's and it's weird like you'll see people two years apart and and they'll just be like you look different or something like that and you'll be like what what do you mean like what do you mean by that and they're like just dif- different and i was like interesting but um, I I did have one question. If there have been any, um, are there any sort of outliers where like you've seen a discordance between these metrics when you did an MRI versus you looked at the external symptoms, or or did everything kind of seem to fall into a line with this metric? Because there was some concern when we talked to, I think Gabor that sometimes in later stage disease there can be insulin resistance in the visceral adipose tissue so maybe the correlation and i don't know maybe that's like a later stage thing where like they definitely have the disease and and they already have problems but i was just wondering if you had any um insight on that whether there was discordance uh nothing significant i think some people um i've noticed uh, are a little bit more refractory to resolution of uh visceral fat and uh, so I'll ask them and they'll swear that they're cutting out carbohydrates. And then uh, discussions usually will turn towards how are you sleeping, uh, how much are you drinking, how much stress you have. So we can see the persistence of visceral fat uh, and uh, inflammation and uh, I guess I'd say a reduction in the resolution of disease and uh, a, a tempering of the immediate health benefits that come from lifestyle changes if people have those particular areas. So uh, there, there are a lot of things beyond diet that can influence a visceral fat that we noticed, uh, but I have not seen uh, resolution of visceral fat, uh, resolution of uh, problems with sleeping, drinking, and stress that uh, did not have dramatic uh, changes uh, cutaneously in um, on people's bodies and in terms of how they feel, resolution of uh, medical conditions, but. Um, I would like to comment on the faces. One kind of, well, I think it's very interesting uh, observation I've had with people whose face changes. I record um, a lot of these changes with patients' permission. I show, you know, before and after changes. And what's interesting to me is I'm fascinated by some people that say, oh, my God, look at that. And other people go, well, maybe, maybe a little bit. So, you know, why do people have different tastes? Well, what's interesting to me is the latter ones, if you are working with them, don't have very good results. They are really slow to either adopt lifestyle changes or to get results. They are clearly late adopters. But the person that looks at that and detects a profound change and is really, you know, moved by that they're more the early adopter mindset and they get much better results. They adopt those interventions. So 
I think there's something about the human brain and how you interpret change in the appearance of people that dictates and can predict how quickly you're going to respond to lifestyle changes and uh, your own efforts to become more healthy. So you can be aware of that yourself, uh, you know, when, you, when you're talking to people uh, and, and you're showing off change, uh, the ones that change, that see change a lot, I think they have an advantage uh, to work with. And, I, and I'm very excited to work with those kind of individuals. The ones that, you know, look at the change and they kind of poo-poo it or d- don't see much, uh, they're, that's a lot of heavy lifting for me as a research to work with them. So I, I try to identify individuals that I would describe as alphas, people who uh, are more leader, uh, leadership oriented, uh, people that are more competitive, people who work harder, uh, people who are willing to uh, go out and basically hunt and gather when it's hotter and colder and more difficult and more dangerous than the average person. And I think they are very valuable people to work with. Uh, they have interesting, uh, probably genetics, uh, were we to take a look at that. And, uh, I, I'm also interested in seeing the contribution, potential contribution, uh, that the microbiome, their microbiome might play in, in their particular, uh, personality traits as well. Yeah. I think it's very interesting and important to have those hooks because I know that like I've suffered from a, a carbohydrate addiction in, in my past and it like you, you, you need a lot of different motivators and forces and checks and things in order to help a lot of times if you're working with these problems and, and having, having more things, especially like for someone who isn't clued into perhaps the aesthetic changes in their subcut or their, their cutaneous tissue, like perhaps there are other things that we can do to get them motivated but I, I I know from personal experience that there's just you know the more ways that you can track it you know telling people that a scale isn't a great proxy and maybe you might want to measure your, you know around your waist or something like that that I, I think there are a lot of interesting ways to motivate people to do these things because in reality these changes are very difficult and if you don't have a very strong motivator you will probably fail just given the adversity within our larger environment yeah I, I was Wondering if you had, um, if you had been able to isolate, because one of the things is like Nathan and I are are pretty much carnivore, and we we do that because we we are relatively certain that a lot of the problems come from processed food and processed plants, but it's not necessarily clear with the panoply of of agricultural products that we have. Most of them have been selectively bred to the point that they probably are outside. Or, or that they may fall outside the, the range that our digestive system expects from an evolutionary perspective. And so we have just decided we're going to cut them out and uh, we haven't died yet. So that's kind of what we're rolling with at the, at the time. I mean, I, I have a, probably a little bit more flexibility. They might call me like carnivore adjacent. But um, have you done any work to try and isolate what aspects of diet more specifically influence these outcome metrics? I Obviously, like... Some people view uh, like a ketogenic diet or a paleo diet as overly restrictive, especially like a carnivore diet would be considered overly restrictive because it removes a lot of things that people think might benefit. Although there are differing perspectives from, you know, is is a is a whole grain that has been totally unperturbed going to cause problems to your microbiome versus uh, a plant with anti nutrients versus a more processed plant like a flour or even like a whole wheat flour. 
Um, and there's a lot of uh, difficulty in trying to answer that problem of, of specifically if we turned each individual food item on or off within people, how would that um, affect our health? And I don't know if you've done any further deep digging into this area or whether you've seen any trends within your patients. Well, my initial thought on it is that uh, I think uh, it's enormously complex. Yeah, the, the the individual food items and uh, uh, I think artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, looking at hundreds of millions of people is going to allow us to explore uh, far more effectively than nutritional studies uh, and the limitation that uh, that particular effort uh, brings. So uh, I'm excited to see the emergence and participation in this space of IT guys like you. And I would love to get more people in the artificial intelligence realm and the IT community uh, to start taking a look at that because I think it's it's going to be super exciting. However, um, I move, uh, you know, in some generalities and I uh, am of the opinion that grains uh, are a problem for us and I have eliminated them from my diet. Um, I get my clients to do the same thing. And it's hard to say, you know, exactly what contribution that that elimination plays other than if uh, we keep them in, problems persist. And one of the interesting things about grains is that it seems to me that um, that there is a uh, a an attraction to them that is uh, uh, difficult to break people from and they are almost addictive to to grains. I mean, I can get people to stop broccoli. But try to get them to give up greens, and you got an argument on your hands. Yeah, I, I know that very well. So one of the when you say you know addicted addictive nature to to carbs, one of the things that I have found in my experience, and it's, it's become now part of my practice as an objective, is if people have an addiction or a a strong attraction to uh, processed foods, particularly uh, uh, simple carbs is that I work very quickly to try to optimize their microbiome. And I know the microbiome is a big black box. But the healthier you are, the healthier your microbiome is. And so I work to try to get people to uh, first stop harming their microbiome by uh, eating processed foods that have food preservatives in there, disrupting those little delicate uh, and, and precious uh, microbes that are down there. And secondly... Uh, I, I get them to make, you know, adopt the healthiest lifestyle as possible to help uh, strengthen and improve uh, the existence of, of microbes, beneficial microbes down there. And then I send in what I liken to uh, borrow from my military training, uh, special operators. And so what I send is Neil, uh, Navy SEAL Team 6 uh, down into, uh, into the stomach, the gastrointestinal tract by having people uh, adopt what has been part of a, a a tradition of, 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 of populations of people that live long lives and are usually healthy, and that is fermented foods. So probiotic fermented foods, um, I get people to eat. Now, when I get people to do that and stay with it, they never fall away. So Dr. Peter Atia, if you ever hear this podcast, uh, there you go. The reason why I'm fascinated with Peter Tia's brilliant mind, he wears these t-shirts with discipline. The guy has a lot of discipline, but you know, he's very honest. 
he can't stop eating bread and he reports he eats pizza, you know, uh, for breakfast sometimes when he's sleep deprived. And I'm astounded. I'm like, how could this uh, guy who knows so much about these harmful foods go ahead and do that? And yet um, I am completely resilient. I, I have zero cravings for these foods. And I get my patients to do that by optimization of their microbiome. So I think that's that's Peter's, Peter's challenge is that he needs to spend more time optimizing his microbiome, getting more probiotic fermented foods in there, uh, stop eating fermented foods. And, and the reason is you, you can become healthy. Uh, and you could get rid of these bad guys, but we live in a world where these microbes uh, are uh, ubiquitously present. So you go to the store, you touch a, a grocery, you know, cart, you open a door, you touch anything, you wipe sweat, you, you sneeze, you got those microbes on your on your your face. They eventually go in your mouth. They go down there, and so um, they'll die if you got fermented foods in there because they're opportunistic. So. You know, these uh, other organisms that are down that are benign and beneficial, you know, uh, outcompete them uh, for resources. But if you feed them cereal, uh, simple carbs, sugars and things along those lines, then they're going to have, you know, a wild reproductive session uh, within you. And uh, make no mistake about it. These organisms have existed, uh, pre outdated us. And the only way they can survive is because they don't have legs, arms, feet, eyes, and other senses to go out and climb out of your body, is to influence your thinking and induce cravings for you to feed them, because otherwise they are surely going to die. So I like to educate my clients about the, the uh, amazing and significant role the microbiome plays with health and helping patients and clients I work with uh, become more resilient to stop eating uh, lousy, unhealthy food. That's really interesting. And that definitely kills me when I'm listening to Peter Tia's podcast occasionally, like when he's chatting. Does, with does somebody he sincerely about, eat pizza? Yeah, he Still? was chatting he does. With, I uh, mean, near, <laughs> near Benzali about uh, oh, type no. 2 diabetes. And then they were talking at the end of the podcast about where they were going to go to get Indian food for dinner. What? Um, yeah. Is that why and, he, you know, he fell off the keto bandwagon? Because he, he said he like he, he, he does. The, he, he makes up for it by taking uh, rapamycin and oh, Lord. Um, metformin and fasting once a quarter with a the, the nothing burger keto a week of fasting week of keto kind of thing he takes metformin to like really what yeah he takes metformin and rapamycin daily how do i not know this maybe i don't listen to his podcast enough yeah well he's a little crazy he takes metformin daily yeah 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 he's not a fan of the the microbiome and uh you know i don't want to unfairly quote peter but um the, the last attribution I saw from uh, uh, Peter uh, on the microbiome was that it's it's uh, it's basically we don't know enough about it to really leverage it. Oh, good Lord, man. <laughs> it's it, you are way smarter than I am. You know, don't allow that to intimidate you. You know, make some healthier choices. Study, you know, you try an intervention, you measure it. You try an intervention, you measure it. Yeah, we don't have it mastered and we probably won't have it mastered in a lifetime. But it's my, you know, position that we can do more than nothing with it. And I, you know, in my, my efforts so far with getting people to optimize it to the extent that I do, their cravings go away. And Peter, why not try it? You know, why not do what I just suggested? 
and see if your cravings and suddenly do you uh, find yourself uh, able to turn away from your kid's cereal and, and the junky stuff that you've you've reported. And, I, and I glad, I'm glad that you're honest about that. But at the same time, you know, don't you think there's some people out there that are looking for some heroes? I think we need some role models out there that, you know, give people some hope that they can get away with, get through these cravings. Because uh, I can get my, uh, if there's anybody listening that really wants to get rid of cravings, you know, you know, come and, and uh, you know, get connected with me out here in Minneapolis. Look me up and, uh, and, and we, we can do that. Uh, but I think that's what's been missing in healthcare. Because think about when you go to a physician and they're going to tell you about being healthy. And usually uh, and our physicians, unfortunately, are not role models for health. We look, we have role models in everything, basketball, football, uh, the best uh, attorneys in, in the country, the best consultants, the best, you know, IT people. Uh, why don't we have role models for health? You know, and how discouraging uh, it must be to patients when they go in and they have a physician that looks so, uh, so awful. We just need to look towards uh, Nick's doctor, Ted Naiman, who's ripped and <laughs> looks pretty good, or Paul Saladino or any of these guys. They're, we have a couple of them. They're up and coming, I guess. Oh, yeah. Well, now they're starting to come out. Um, and, you know, and I'm, I, I'm no slouch either. Uh, I, uh, I'm, I'm in the military and, and uh, I, I can outperform uh, pull-ups and push-ups uh, and any soldier, at least, that I've, I've run into. And I'm 56 years old. You've got me beat with 33 pull-ups. That's pretty crazy. I gotta, <laughs> gotta work on that. <laughs> so, you know, we do, you know, to your point though, we do, we do need more physicians and they are starting to come out there, uh, to be those kind of role models, uh, because I think, uh, I think it's really necessary if we're going to, uh, be effective. And, you know, I, you know, the other interesting aspect to these, to these role models is that, you know, I think we wear our health on our faces. And 30,000 years ago, we would encounter strangers, homo sapiens that we didn't know. They weren't part of our tribe and our clan. And all we would have had to look at was their face. It would have had animal skins in their body, uh, probably. Uh, but we, we are pre-programmed to take a look at that face and decide, are they good hunter-gatherers? Either to invite them to join our tribe, or if our tribe has gotten lazy, and just not good at hunting, gathering anymore. And we're looking for a, a new, new uh, place to hang out, new group of people. Then we're attracted to their hunter gatherer face uh, to, to join their their tribe or their clan or whatever we called it back then. So, what I try to leverage with uh, within the business community and leaders who are trying to become influencers is you want a hunter gatherer face. And by the way, you you guys have hunter gatherer faces. You look healthy. And you want to be in that space where you have that that lean hunter-gatherer look uh, that says to people, I know how to hunt and gather, and I know how to lead. And if you're somebody who's just a performer, not so much, so I don't think important that how you look, but if you're going to lead and you're going to influence, then you, you want to know uh, people that you talk to are going to want to know that you know how to do that. And I think that's why uh, it's important that you know, people uh, leverage biology uh, in the sphere of influence. If you're going to be a leader, if you're going to run a company, if you're going to be an influencer uh, in social media, you know, you're, you're going to want to uh, have uh, optimized uh, health so that you wear that on your face and people are more inclined to listen to what you're saying. Evolutionary, evolutionarily, rather, it's 
it's obvious that it would have been incredibly important for us to be able to detect subtle changes in health. When you go to reproduce with someone, you want to know how healthy they are. Like it, it is d- directly important to the survival of your offspring that you mate with someone who's healthy. And so, I mean, I, I've just found it very interesting with me. Like all of a sudden I have a jawbone and I, then I'm like, wait, why doesn't anyone else have a jawbone? And there are all these like interesting little, little changes that I, it, it's actually pretty maddening because when I go on the subway, that's really all I can think about now. And I have to like distract myself listening to a podcast or something. Otherwise I'm just going to be <laughs> obsessed over how much diabetic pathology I see in everyone. But you've got me looking at people's limbal rings now. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. I, uh, I, I walk around mall of America, which is the big shopping mall out here in Minneapolis. And, uh, uh, everybody that walks by me, I'm doing a facial analysis on them, and I glance down at their their uh, abdominal girth, and uh, you know, do a, a visual gross uh, estimation of the visceral fat that they have within their their abdomen. So, yeah, I'm a walking a uh, supercomputer, just taking a look at people, and and that's that's what I do. And I think thirty thousand, twenty thousand years ago, that's that's what we would have done. And it's absolutely connected to to reproduction. So we we are attracted to prospects uh, for mating based on how healthy they are for survival of the fittest. Nature puts that software in us. So if you're a young guy or girl uh, in the market to you know to uh, uh, to, to get married and to have a significant other, um, you know, get yourself healthy. You optimally become healthy. You're willing to leverage the power of biology and evolutionary attraction in prospects uh, who are going to be more attracted to you. You can be as clever and as funny as you like, but it's biology that's going to uh, be the operative force. And uh, we see fertility issues uh, improving, people, reproductive values improving as well, and they become more healthy. I, I often wonder why fertility specialists uh, spend you know, don't don't spend time uh, working to try to optimize health. One is they probably don't know how to do it because it's not taught to us in medical school, nor is it distributed in the medical journals. But two, sadly to say, they don't make money. Nobody's figured out how to make money when you sit down and talk to people about what to eat and how to exercise. Uh, that's not revenue generated. But if you do some in vitro fertilization, uh, or some other, you know, procedure. Then there's CPT coding and you can make some real money off that. So, you know, I would, anybody listening that has fertility as an issue, uh, I would say get yourself optimally healthy, get rid of your visceral fat, get educated, do quantified self biohack, uh, before you go and spend a lot of money, uh, on, uh, in, uh, fertilization reproductive specialists. So you mentioned, uh, you know, training how people can diet and exercise. So you, that leads to the, the exercise question, I guess you mentioned in one of your talks that you had a patient who was seeing you, who was running 10 miles a day, five days a week, and still had a lot of visceral fat and subcutaneous fat and wasn't really making progress. So you had them switch to high intensity sprinting instead of that chronic, uh, running every day. And they lost like two pounds of visceral fat and a bunch of subcutaneous fat, and maybe even put on some muscle. Uh, do you know, you know, why do you think that is? I think I have an idea and I think Nick will speak to that next, but I, I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yeah. Yeah. So we're not entirely sure other than anecdotally, that's what happens when we get our clients sprinting. 
And so across the board, that is uh, one of the universal uh, interventions that we we have our clients do. Now, in some cases, uh, you know, we have some morbidly obese people that we're working with. So uh, to say that we get them sprinting at the outset would probably be a little bit of a stretch. Uh, getting them uh, up out of chairs and walking around is the beginning. And then uh, we start people that are uh, old and infirmed with with slow sprinting up hills, you know, where they don't have to have the sophisticated biomechanical movements of uh, joints uh, moving as quickly. They're just kind of a, a slow, hard effort up a hill, uh, a little bit safer and easier to do. But uh, anecdotally, we see uh, re- reduction in visceral fat and uh, in combination, oftentimes, uh, it's it's being done with a lot of things. In that particular case, uh, the reason why it, uh, I share that is that we happened, it was the only intervention. It was the only thing that changed in two months in that person's baseline scan. And then two months, it wasn't even two months, it was like just a little short of two months uh, that we had them stop doing the aerobic long distance running and substitute in place the sprinting. And uh, uh, Nathan is correct. They lost visceral fat and they actually uh, uh, improved, uh, uh, increased their muscle. We were able to quantify the hypertrophy of the, the muscle tissues within the abdominal region, uh, indicating, you know, greater production of uh, their dominus rectus muscles, oblique muscles, and their whole body shape changed. They became jacked, you know. Wow. We had to, you know, had to make sure that that guy wasn't using steroids uh, because uh, his change was so dramatic with the impact. Now, that that change happens uh, very frequently, but you know what's unusual about that case is that there were no other changes. So other people were having them change their diet, were having to optimize their <clears throat> their sleep, uh, other things. So we're we we can't uh, so conclusively say uh, the sprinting has had um, such a dramatic impact. But yeah, there's not a client that doesn't come to my clinic uh, that I'm not working with to uh, optimize their health by introducing them to sprinting. And my thought process, and I'm, I'm, before um, I'm intrigued to hear what you guys are, is uh, it's a survival skill. So if we look back and try to figure out what, what do we really need to be doing is what we need to survive. And what we need to survive is not so much what we need to survive today, but what genetically we need to survive 20, 30,000 more years ago uh, uh, from at least before then, when our genetics and our physiology and our metabolism was being created. And back then, what we were doing is we had to run away from animals trying to kill us, run to another animal that we were trying to eat, and run to a, another uh, organism that might have been trying to kill one of our children, our offspring, or um, our, our mate. So sprinting was absolutely a survivor, survivor skill. And so that's why I think it, it has a role. It's necessary because it's part of our, our, our lifestyle. And when you sprint, it's, it's almost the, the near perfect uh, form of exercise. Uh, uh, I've read articles where it uses virtually every muscle of your body. And I, ha- I would have to agree, my, my, even my biceps when I'm sprinting get pumped with blood. All my muscles fill up with blood in a very short period of time. So I find it an enormously uh, high yield um, on an on an investment in uh, in a short exercise. Yeah, that's awesome. I think I'm gonna start adding more sprinting to my uh, workout. I did some sprints up and down the street the other day after I uh, listened to your talk. One of the things that I worry about is that a lot of people are doing. I think a lot of people exercise because they're motivated by calories, 
which I think is, I, I, it's one of the reasons I like bothers me to go to the gym because I see everyone overweight people on the elliptical, just trying to like, just do endurance exercise for like 60 minutes at a time. And I'm, I'm suspicious that I don't really have any evidence to back it up, but I'm suspicious that there are bad modalities of exercise. Like when I typically go to the gym, I do a relatively short, high intensity resistance training type circuit. And then I leave, you know, I don't sit there for 90 minutes. And I'm suspicious that there are ways that you can push this system in, in ways that are probably actively detrimental to our health long term. I think that the popular opinion is just more is always better. Always, 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 always with exercise. And I just don't think that that's that doesn't seem right to me intuitively. And, and yeah, maybe someday I'll have more data to back it up. But that's why these anecdotes, like you say, are interesting. Well, I think I, I think I have some data to back that up, which is that uh, I found some research and this is kind of my hypothesis as to why the guy lost some visceral fat running is that when you run at over 70% of your VO2 max, let's say, uh, you start to induce intestinal ischemia with uh, increasing amount of exercise. And with that intestinal ischemia, you lead to intestinal permeability, which then leads to uh, endotoxins entering the circulation, which leads to adipose tissue inflammation and hypertrophy leading to either retention or um, growth of the visceral and adipo other adipose tissue. Um, so that's kind of our, what we're looking at at the minute that we think is super interesting is how the microbiome relates to endotoxemia and how endotoxemia either from the oral microbiome infection, uh, or gut dysbiosis, intestinal permeability can lead to, um, adiposity, cardiovascular disease, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Super interesting. Yeah, we're looking to use, and what I think is interesting is that there, as we talk about with the microbiome, there's a ton of things we don't understand about that. But if we can say perhaps the key outcome metric of the microbiome or a key outcome metric is uh, toxin absorption and permeability of the system. And if we could use that as a proxy to understand it, we'd be really interested to at least try doing some experiments with different levels of health of people and measure these surrogates that we, we think might potentially act as causal vectors for downstream problems, whether that be adipocyte inflammation or disease activation for atherogenesis or things like that. No, I think, uh, I think your theory uh, uh, make, makes a lot of sense. And I encourage you to uh, continue to uh, uh, take a look at that. And, and hopefully we can start to generate within the research community, uh, focus in on that. You know, anecdotally, uh, we've had uh, distance runners come in and uh, I've seen inflammation that I that I perceive on their face, and so I've invited some of them to come in to be scanned for free. And what's interesting is that they're skinny on the outside, but they got visceral fat on the inside, and you know they imagine themselves to be super healthy. But why are they? Why do they have uh, large amounts of visceral fat con concealed within their abdominal? Uh, cavity? So I point this out to them, and I used to be a medical examiner in Virginia corner. And uh, so we would have these terrible outcomes for, you know, young guys that were usually young guys uh, with sudden, sudden death. And they would be um, uh, pr presumably diagnosed. We just put atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease on the cause of death. And, and uh, autopsies oftentimes would show if they were done uh, that they in fact died from myocardial infarction. So, uh, you know, they, they would have uh uh, these marathoners and uh, one of one of my uh, uh, favorite stories is a, as a marathoner who came in, he was doing eight to ten marathons a year. I mean, that's a pretty good amount of marathons, and 
Um, he was, he was thin and he, he, he had a lot of grit, very much an alpha type of guy, very competitive and, uh, uh, very thin, you know, typical marathoner kind of build. And so we scanned him and I showed him healthy levels of visceral fat, you know, uh, you know, in healthy people, absence of visceral fat and, uh, visceral fat and other people. And so we scanned him. He had a very large amount of visceral fat with his abdomen. He's only 34 year, 34 years old, uh, enormous amount of fat surrounding his heart. He took a look at those scans. He walked up to me, got like a foot away from my face and said, I am going to be your most motivated client. That guy, on a dime, gave up distance running and became a sprinter. Now, that's a hard thing to achieve, trying to get somebody to give up distance running because all those endorphins and the addictive qualities that go, you know, belie, you know, people's uh, interest and, and, and fondness of distance running. So he walked from it and became a sprinter. And to this day, he's still, uh, he's still sprinting. So it's, uh, it's fascinating to me that, uh, you know, we are uh, looking at still at the year 2019, uh, the health benefits or detriments of uh, distance running. And I, I will be a voice to, out there saying, I think we need to look more at the, the detriment. And I think they're exercising too much. I agree um, with Nick's uh, assessment that, uh, you know, uh, people too often say, you know, if, if something is good, more is better. And the other point I would uh, make about distance running is just look at their bodies. Uh, if you look at an Olympic marathoner and Olympic sprinter, whose body looks healthier? And, you know, it, it, they, to me, they manifest sarcopenia, atrophy of the muscle and wasting. And yeah, I get that they don't, you know, they're trying to be a leaner uh, package maybe, but um, to me, it's just not, um, it's not grossly uh, from a uh, out, out out of body taking a look, uh, healthy uh, man of uh, appearance, and then when we scan marathoners, we do see a surprising amount of visceral fat and pericardial fat. So uh, I would I recommend to my clients uh, to if they're serious marathoners to cut back on on running marathons and uh, distance running and to adopt a practice of sprinting. That's really interesting. I wish uh, wish we could get some serum endotoxin levels in these folks. I think. Uh... I think I'm going to have to loop in my friend who's a marathon runner. She just qualified for the Boston Marathon, so she's pretty crazy at it. But uh, we'll have to see if her endotoxins are up. I can also send you some papers about the endotoxin levels in ultramarathoners, and they have some pretty solid increases. Same thing with uh, the intestinal ischemia papers. I'll send you links to those. Do you always do interventions where you do all of them at the same time? Or have you done tiered interventions where you start with a diet, and then if that doesn't work, you go for some of the lifestyle things that... Are, are there any of those that have enabled you to suss out which is more important? Yeah, that's the that's such a great question. I, I'd like to be able to say that we had this, uh, you know, uh, uh, unlimited pot of uh, uh, funds to to be able to do exactly that. But the way we um, have re- leveraged it in existence, and by the way, we took our results after scanning um, uh, 3,500 patients. Uh, and becoming uh, very knowledgeable about visceral fat and these and these important biomarkers to the National Science Foundation, and we received a grant uh, that was very exciting. and And the original granting proposal was to incorporate machine learning and in, uh, into uh, into studying these biomarkers and other aspects as well. But it's an awfully expensive endeavor to get involved in machine learning, and uh, we quickly went through our funds, and so we had to. 
um, uh, turn our focus towards uh, offering uh, uh, a service where we we work to optimize people's health. And people weren't really interested in just trying out one, you know, just one thing um, and not getting good results. They they want to do whatever they can to get as healthy as possible. Uh, now, there are people, you know, just the opposite. In fact, uh, uh, I was on a podcast this morning with a former client who runs a business podcast, and he was just the opposite. I, I used him as a beta. I tested him about two and a half years ago. Uh, he was a C-level of a major corporation. He came in reluctantly because one of his good friends uh, was just raving about me and made the guy come in and uh, went through the, you know, the study and, and he kind of reluctantly listened to me and I was telling him to do all these, you know, 20 interventions and he basically said, uh, I'm not buying that. Uh, he admitted to me today in the podcast that pissed him off <laughs> and uh, he was just going to do one thing, cut out processed foods. Uh, but as a consequence of cutting out the processed foods, he felt so much better that his wife reminded him of Dr. Sean's recommendations and maybe tried doing more. So he has slowly uh, put on more. And that guy has dramatically changed. Now you talk about a face change. Uh, that guy has had a significant face change. His LinkedIn account, big, chubby, heavy set, uh, obese looking face. And now he's is this lean hunter gatherer. I'll have to send you guys his photographs. Uh, very uh, interesting change. And, and so he invited me to be on his podcast. He calls How Did It Happen? His name is Mike Malatesta. And so he invited me to be on his podcast to explain, you know, how, how, how it happened to me, how I got interested in this field. And, and, he, and he told his old, old story. So, yeah, there are people out there that um, do uh, just want to do, you know, uh, just a little bit. But in, in our study, the way we're operating now in our practice is that we, we look for people that are willing to uh, get the best results as quickly as possible because I'm really eager to figure out chronic disease and optimization of health. And I don't think we want to wait decades. I want to try to get the best results as quickly as possible. Um, and I think it's going to be AI and machine learning uh, that is ultimately going to help us define exactly that. But uh, for the for the time being, uh, uh, that's what we're we're forced to work with here in Minneapolis. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense to me. I I actually so I've I've had the uh, I don't know the pleasure or the unfortunate of event of falling off the ketogenic diet and gaining a ton of weight back. And so I've actually done a forty pound weight loss with keto twice. And the first time I threw the kitchen sink at it and I did tons of endurance exercise. And the second time I did essentially zero exercise by trying the same diet, which was an interesting experiment for me. Yeah. There were several interesting things I noted. One, there was some magical point about 12 months after I had started the diet where most of the weight had come off where all of a sudden my energy went up. It was almost like a step function that all of a sudden I was like, I want to exercise now, which I thought was very interesting because I there are is concerns for me, like you say, about impact of exercise especially like if you're going to try to run five miles and you have 40 extra pounds of adipose tissue on you that's going to destroy your limbs but um definitely and it's hard for me to say because obviously it was at two different times in my life and the environment was a little bit different and one of them i was working full-time so there was uh, a lot going on but there were some interesting things that i noticed between doing it twice you know i lost the weight both times the first time was a little faster when i was doing exercise the second time it was a little slower when i wasn't doing tons of exercise and then but I, I just think it's interesting. That was my own personal experiment where I, I, I tried that. Yeah. Well, it reminded me of a p- observation we have with uh, patients that incorporate, start sprinting uh, with weight loss. 
So uh, I'm fascinated that when sprinting gets added and it's it's missing, that weight loss is not as good, uh, but not so much with distance running. When I was an obese guy, I ran 90, 75 to 90 minutes a day. There's a lot of heavyset guys out there jogging. But sprinting really took it off for me. And, and, and I see it with my clients. So with my Asperger's, I, I just asked why. I couldn't let it go. So here's my thought. Uh, what's different about jogging is um, your body knows you're just jogging. But if you are sprinting, I think your body and your brain line up and say, this guy is now hunting and gathering. It's incompatible for them to have all this extra weight on. And so it starts shredding that weight. And so it is a possible explanation for why people dramatically lose weight when they incorporate sprinting into their lifestyle uh, versus if they start jogging and running. So uh, just another observation that I, I, I remembered from um, our study and working with clients. It's sprinting uh, is a uh, expediter of uh, a loss of fat. It, it would make sense because if you're doing distance running, you need to be able to store a lot of energy. Whereas if you're doing sprinting, presumably you're about to kill an animal or something. And I don't know. There, there are ways you could hypothesize about that and the relationship between the energy requirements or the yeah, well, it's incompatible. I think if you're sprinting uh, after an animal uh, and uh, you you want to be able to run fast, having excess of stored fat um, is going to make it more difficult for you to catch that animal or for you to get away from an animal if you have too much weight. So if you're back in the game, I call it, you need back in the game of survival. And uh, from an evolutionary standpoint, this is called selection pressure. Um, if your body thinks you're back with selection pressure and you're, you're living to survive, then uh, it will start to influence, uh, influence you and, and, and follow suit to whatever you're doing. And I think that's a big problem with our, uh, our species today is that we've, we no longer have selection pressure guiding us uh, to, uh, to, to optimize our health. And, you know, it was survival of the fittest uh, you know, 30,000 years ago, the, only the fit surviving got to contribute to the gene pool. And I defined that, you know, the fittest were the people that were their most resilient ones that would run faster, run harder, run when it was hotter out and hunt and gather when it was hotter and colder out. Uh, they were more resilient. So today I explain it this way. Survival of the analyst. It's guys like you two that analyze things that are going to survive and optimize. So uh, it's the biohacking community out there, the survival of the analysts who are going to optimize and help us figure this out. And they're going to pull ahead of the other people. Just my observation. That's that's how I coin it. The uh, real question, though, is if uh, Nathan and I make our way over to Minneapolis, are you going to give us uh, MRIs and we can uh, see some of this stuff? I, I've, I'm very, I've only gotten Texas scans. I haven't ever done an MRI or anything to yeah, I'll I'll talk uh, I'll talk my uh, uh, other shareholders into skinning you guys for free if you come out here. I think we're we're more than happy to pay for it. <laughs> well, I'll be curious to take a look at, and we'll sit down and, and take a look at some other biomarkers too. And I'll I'll arm you with a lot of stuff to track uh, when you go back to to follow. So uh, yeah, we we have some pretty interesting conferences out here. So uh, perhaps there'll be something that uh, will interest uh, both of you guys to come out and, and I'd I'd love to meet you. For sure. I think we'd just, we'd fly out just for the MRI or at least yeah, I would. just whatever. <laughs> Go over there for a weekend, yeah. see some friends. Visit yeah. the Mall of America. 
Yeah. So on the MRIs, are you able to look at, or have you looked at people's uh, coronary arteries? I know you mentioned the carotid and the uh, circle of Willis and... Yeah, one of the challenges with the coronary arteries is the dynamic motion involved with the heart. So um, we have to get people to stay real still. Now, as uh, magnetic technology, which is the kind of defining feature to uh, uh, MRIs, uh, get faster, we'll be able to uh, scan and measure these biomarkers and tissues uh, when there is some uh, motion uh, movement. Otherwise, currently, we're limited and we get uh, artifacts. So um, there's there's a lot of, if there's disease in the coronary arteries, there's disease oftentimes in other arteries. If we find, uh, you know, an autopsies, uh, cerebral artery, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, uh, we'll find it in the coronary arteries. There's a lot of correlation to that. So um, it's one of the reasons why people do, uh, carotid intimal um, measurements on uh, carotids is because they're not moving and the ultrasound can detect that and it correlates very nicely the evidence of the disease in the carotids um, to uh, disease in the in the coronary arteries. So yeah, um, it's, it's not something that's being done um, uh, that I'm aware of. There are some, uh, I think some uh, research level uh, MRIs that might be able to do that yeah, I think it's a software problem. I think you can do it with a, uh, a standard 1.5 Tesla magnet, but it requires some fancy pants software. There was a guy on Peter Atia's podcast, if you uh, listen to the episode with the guy who runs the whole body MRI clinic, he basically just did some super fancy tuning of his MRI machine on just a standard 1.5 Tesla magnet to really increase the resolution and the signal to noise by a huge margin, which is super interesting. Wow. I didn't know that uh, Peter had somebody like that, that, but that's a, you know, obviously a related space. So I better go and uh, take a look at that, uh, listen to that podcast that Peter had. Yeah, I definitely would. It was super interesting to learn about how MRIs work and the T1 and T2 weighted imaging and diffusion weighted imaging and all the crazy stuff they can do there. Yeah. Well, I'll be eager to see what the guy's uh, doing with it. Yeah. Are you guys doing contrast for the cerebral MRIs or are you able to get that without contrast? Uh, we do it without the contrast. Um, we do some uh, conventional studies, some some other healthcare systems and doctors will send people into our, we have a relationship with a, uh, a radiology service out here in Minneapolis uh, that will send some patients in here for um, gadolinium studies. And so there is there is the, the capacity for doing the contrast, but we don't need it uh, to be able to see it. Uh, at least uh, it's oftentimes used for uh, finer diagnostic um, changes, looking at uh, uh, the cerebral uh, cortex and other uh, other areas to, to, to kind of highlight and see if there there may be tumors and things along those lines. But for the atherosclerotic cardiovascular lesions and plaques in the cerebral arteries, uh, we don't use the the contrast. And uh, you know, I just assume not put that in, into patients. Yeah, that makes sense. The the guy was saying that you can do this cerebral imaging and look at the blood vessels in the brain because you can tell using the something about the MRI imaging which of the blood is oxygenated and what blood is not oxygenated because its characteristics are different under uh, the magnet, which is super fascinating. I, I've got to re-listen to that podcast. We're a little bit, I mean, so we've been reading a lot about uh, pathology of heart disease in general. And so there's there's concern about, I mean, obviously, is a general rule of thumb and something to track the uh, 
cardiovascular disease and other regions of the body could be interesting to look at, especially because the, of the association with stroke and other endpoints that people care about there. But there's some concern with looking at plaques in different regions and making the assumption that they're a good proxy of um, coronary cardiovascular disease. One of the pathologists was basically saying that there are simply unique characteristics about the coronary vascular bed that it, it doesn't mean that, that there, it's not very interesting to do, but it, it's interesting to us to look for ways that we could potentially try and get better data directly on the coronary arteries. Because, for example, with uh, when you feed a rabbit cholesterol, it gets plenty of, uh, I guess, what do they call them, type 1 fatty streak lesions, but they're in the wrong place. They're in the aorta, and they actually don't get any lesions in the coronary at all. So that there's just... In the field in general, there's a lot of shenanigans is probably a good way to put it in terms of mixing what you're calling atherosclerosis and how you define the disease and, and all these interesting things that, that we are we're trying to be very precise about when we discuss these things and when we're, we're looking for research, if that makes sense. Oh, no, it makes a lot of sense. In fact, I heard your podcast uh, uh, that was just recently released with uh, Nadir. Yeah. Uh, loved it. I mean, you guys uh, are just super impressed with uh, uh, engineers, uh, IT background, uh, with the capacity to articulate and comprehend the nuances of medical science in, in the realm of heart disease and the manner in which you guys do. I, I just, as a physician, I got to tell you, extraordinarily impressed. And I uh, thank you for your contributions. I think Nader was was uh, equally appreciative uh, as well. But I share your perspective that um, I think it's a myopic view just to look for uh, evidence of plaques. Uh, clearly, there are more things going on uh, involved and there are other metrics. And I think you guys are doing the right thing. That, and that's that's what I do. I, I, I see things, but I look for others as well. And I think it's an imperative that we must bring uh, to medical science to to try to get people to uh, to become optimally healthy and reverse chronic disease and uh, begin turning this enormous ship around. And I don't think conventional healthcare is is going to play a role in it. I think uh, I think it's going to be disruptors, uh, disrupted minded people like yourselves, uh, Jeff Bezos type of personalities uh, that say, you know, consumers don't have to go to brick and mortar facilities to purchase things. We're going to do this through the internet. I'd like to see that kind of a mentality and approach, uh, get applied to through the internet to, uh, consumers. And I think we got to stop calling ourselves patients. You know, patients are people that go and spend, uh, a lot of money in a, in a poor way, uh, with, with, uh, physicians, conventional healthcare. I think we're all consumers. And I think if we uh, promote a mindset that as consumers, we want to get the best value for our money, then we'll stop going to conventional healthcare. And I think conventional healthcare might stop, uh, and, you know, doing what they're doing and change the system. But I think there's going to be transformation. I think there's going to be disruption. Somebody's going to figure out how to study, uh, biomarkers, uh, in a manner that allows patients or, you know, you know just, said what I didn't want to do, uh, consumers to optimize their health and reverse disease without uh, reliance and uh, necessity to uh, follow uh, conventional healthcare physicians or uh, insurance companies that are going to uh, tell them what they what tests they can and cannot do and what they what kind of treatment they can and cannot have or pursue. So 
educating consumers on what to take a look at, how to uh, really reverse disease and become optimally healthy, I think is the future. And when some disrupted-minded business uh, uh, professionals figure out a commercially viable platform for that to happen, then I think you'll see a real disruption of conventional healthcare happen. Yeah, those are definitely things we're interested in. Um, is there anything else you've got, Nathan? Uh, no, I think I, I got through most of my questions. Is there anything else you want to talk about, Sean? No, I don't think so, other than uh, I'll reiterate, uh, you know, I'm super impressed with you guys. We appreciate it. I think uh, you're you're on to something. I love your, your, your podcast. I just want to encourage you both to continue on. Uh, I really do uh, hope we can meet uh, Minneapolis or some, uh, maybe it'll be another convention. Uh, but uh, regardless, I, I uh, uh, certainly plan to stay in touch. I look forward to uh, continue to be uh, connected to you both and wish you all the best in your endeavors. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Root Causing Health Podcast. If you like what you heard, feel free to subscribe and leave us a review. Also visit us online at rootcausinghealth.com to learn more. And please consider supporting our research on Patreon. Patreon.